everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I'm joined in the studio by my producer, Joel. And today we are covering two very tragic spelunking incidents. One that occurred at the Nutty Putty Cave and the other very close nearby in Y Mountain or the Cave of Death. Spelunking is one of those activities that has never really appealed to me. Yeah, same here. I feel like there's just something very unnatural about going underground. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you die, you're buried six feet in the ground. And <laughs> yeah. The last thing you want to do is go hundreds of feet in the ground. I right. mean, that's just my personal opinion. I've done a little bit of, of spelunking on a very casual level Nice um, in my life. Same. I've done like a little casual uh, cave tour up in Glenwood Springs. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. They have. We've done that too. Yeah. <laughs> That's very chill. I mean, you're you're going, I don't even know how deep you go in that cave. Yeah, it's not deep. Not but... even like 100 feet probably. And it's not like you need to be attached to any ropes or anything. So Yeah, there's definitely no cave diving involved with that. <laughs> no. That's just cave diving in itself just horrifies yeah, me, scary. honestly. There's something about, you know, diving in itself has been something that's kind of been a fear of mine and let mm. alone diving in water while surrounded by mm. you know in an enclosed space yeah. you know if you're a claustrophobic person i am i then, would say then you would hate that oh yeah yeah i was in i was in mexico recently this year and we went to um some cenotes is what they're called basically fresh underground pools and people go cave diving oh, into okay. these cenotes and and i was not diving at all but i was swimming around on the surface with goggles on and you could see the cave divers coming out of the cenotes and they go miles under there oh wow where they have to pull the line all the way through and then follow it back jeez and that to me just seems like i'm sure it's thrilling i'm sure it's yeah like, it really gets the blood pumping but, but i'm just like how do you keep yourself under yeah. control like so you literally have to dive down into the deep abyss and pitch dark pitch dark black pitch dark Ugh with just rock all around you and you have to go so carefully because if you hit the sides and stuff, you can not only like pull your air off oh, of your yeah. back, your tank, your you mask, damage something. You could clip rock off. You could close passageways. Oh you could, you could, there's so many things that can go wrong with cave diving. It's one of the most dangerous, uh, activities on in the world. I, I would believe say. it. So these two incidents that we're covering today are very, very sad and tragic stories and really just, worst case scenarios that play out when it comes to spelunking so that is what we're going to dive in today i've wanted to sort of move into some other topics that are just really fears for everybody i mean i mean some people like to do spelunking and cave diving but i think the majority of us kind of share that same fear of like that would just be absolutely terrifying you know it's not always other humans that scare us or creatures or you know just things of our imagination or hauntings and stuff sometimes it's just sort of normal activities that people do that can be some of our greatest fears right. i feel like and the environment around us yeah the, the natural environment that yeah. you're in can definitely create that fear and you know claustrophobia i mean Ooh. that's a that's a real fear for many people so yeah. but before we get into the episode i wanted to remind everybody that our podcast is now available in video form on spotify in addition to youtube which is really cool we're one of the first podcasts to sort of be granted this ability from spotify so we really feel really lucky to be one of the shows that they're sort of promoting with the new video version of the podcast out there 
So you can now watch the show on Spotify. Also, YouTube is a great place to watch. Joel puts a ton of time in creating sort of a visual experience yes, to sir. go along with the show that many of you have come to love. And honestly, I love because it just helps enhance and really paint that picture for you of, of what you're actually listening to. And you start to really visualize it yeah. when, you know, he's got all these images and clips uh, running during the actual episode itself. And it goes absolutely perfect with your voice. I mean, smooth like honey. <laughs> <laughs> love it, man. Love it. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want an easy way to support the show, it's absolutely free is subscribing to our YouTube channel, which we're like less than a thousand subscribers away from 300,000. So thank you so much. And then on Spotify, if you go and follow us, that really does help us out as well. So we'll have links to all that in the description for you. But lastly, I wanted to remind you that my CBD company, Harlow Wellness, we just released merch actually. So we've got like sweatshirts, hoodies, t-shirts, all that kind of stuff. So if you want to support the show and rep my CBD brand that is out there, that ships worldwide, including Canada, which is awesome. It's just a great way to help support us. If you're a fan of our work and just our CBD company, we really appreciate it. We give 10% off to all of our listeners here at Lights Out with code Lights Out at higherlovewellness.com on all of our CBD products. We've got a new CBD oil called Cool Mint. It's absolutely delicious. Great in all of your hot drinks during this cold winter weather. But yeah, go check out higherlovewellness.com if you haven't already. But this episode of The Lights Out is brought to you by Native Every Plate in Embark. But let's go ahead and jump into the story of the Nutty Putty Cave incident. So the Nutty Putty Cave is a hydrothermal cave south of Salt Lake City. Its narrow entrance sits in a rocky valley near Utah Lake. The hot water shooting from deep within the Earth's crust formed the cave system over thousands of years, possibly even millions. The minerals in the groundwater slowly stripped away at the limestone walls until a massive cave system formed. It was first discovered in 1960 by Dale Green. He was a local ranger and one day he noticed water vapors coming out of a nearby hole in the ground while he was tending to his cattle. Dale and his friends decided to check it out and they started exploring the cave and it didn't take long for them to realize that they had found a very unique place in Utah's countryside. He ended up giving it the name Nutty Putty Cave because of the soft brown clay that oozed from the walls. The clay was also sound active, meaning that if you screamed at it, it vibrated and oozed all over. Everyone who's ventured into the cave comes out covered in brown muck. And after Dale's discovery, Nutty Putty became one of the most popular caves in Utah, but they knew from the start that its narrow passages also made it very dangerous. It contains 1,400 feet of chutes and tunnels that go 145 feet below the surface of the earth. And since it's a hydrothermal cave, these types of caves are extremely complex and they feature large domes and three-dimensional passageways. Some of the tiny tunnels lead to massive rooms and vice versa. Three of the cave's tightest squeezes are named the Helmet Eater, the Scout Eater, the Maze, and the most infamous, the Birth Canal. And many of the deepest tunnels have been left unexplored and for very good reason. The cave had become so popular that in the late 2000s it attracted roughly 5,000 visitors a year. They enjoyed the rooms in the cave like the big slide, where the room descended at a 45 degree angle. Some enjoyed the maze, a series of tiny chambers in tight hallways. One of the rooms contained a hollow rock that rang like a bell when you hit it. But with thousands of inexperienced visitors, some say it was only a matter of time 
before something horrific happened. For many, it was their first time in a cave. Some were young Boy Scouts. Others were on dates or family outings. So Nutty Putty quickly became known as a good spot for beginners, even though its deepest tunnels were dangerous and unexplored. Even with the names of the tunnels hinting at how tight and treacherous they were, inexperienced explorers still crawled through the cave. Between 1999 and 2004, six people became stuck inside Nutty Putty's passageways. In 2004, two Boy Scouts nearly lost their lives. On two separate occasions, the Scouts entered the caves and became trapped within a week of each other. It took 14 hours for search and rescue teams to free a 16-year-old Scout that lodged himself into a deep, small hole. They eventually rescued him with a safety rope attached to a system of pulleys, and he was lucky to make it out alive. Everyone who had gotten stuck somewhere in the cave had made it out alive, but it became obvious that the cave system was more dangerous than cave explorers had originally thought. After search and rescue teams got tired of pulling tourists out of the cave, they complained that something more serious might happen. If it took them 14 hours to rescue a 16-year-old kid who only weighed 145 pounds, they could only imagine how long it would take to rescue a full-grown man. As authorities talked about changing safety protocol for many of Utah's caves, it was already too late. By the next year, a nearby tragedy near Y Mountain caused an uproar over cave exploration safety across Utah. Because not far from Nutty Putty Cave, just on the other side of Utah Lake in Provo, six friends got together and talked about their next cave spelunking plans. On August 17, 2005, 21-year-old Stephen Hunley had dinner with five of his friends and they talked about the legend of the secret cave near Brigham Young University. Supposedly in the back of this secret cave, a water tunnel led to a back room where dark rituals and human sacrifice had taken place. Everyone had heard stories, but they figured they were just myths. No one thought there was any truth to it. But one of Stephen's friends, 21-year-old Jennifer Galbraith, told them that not only was the cave real, but she had been to it before. Of course they didn't believe her, but they were willing to listen to her story. She told them it was a cave near the base of Y Mountain, just north of the Seven Peaks Golf Course on the edge of Provo. She told them the cave entrance was a tiny gap between limestone boulders that was easy to miss, and local authorities didn't even know it existed. She described the cave in detail, hoping to get their attention. The cave entrance had a 15-foot drop to the first chamber, and once you were inside, you had to crouch through a 4-foot tall tunnel. After a 100-foot trek through the cave, the path led to a pool of dark water. After shining a flashlight down into the water, a small opening was visible at the bottom of the pool just big enough for a grown person to fit through. Jennifer told the group that the hole led to a 15-foot tunnel that opened up to a small air pocket at the end. As far as Jennifer knew, not many people knew about the cave. But the explorers who had been there before left a rope leading through the water tunnel. It was connected to a wood plank inside of the secret room. Some say that two large candles were left burning inside the cave, which showed that people had been there before and that there was enough oxygen inside the back room. The rope in the water tunnel was meant to guide the cave divers through the hole so they could quickly pull themselves through without fear of drowning. She said she had gone through the water tunnel before with a group of friends. The worst part was how freezing cold the water was. Once she reached the secret room, she had to quickly return to the other side to warm up. 
After she finished her story about the secret cave, Stephen and his friends wanted to visit it, of course. They jokingly named it the Cave of Death, since the water tunnel sounded risky. However, they didn't know if this was the same secret cave they had always heard about. But either way, they all wanted to go and check it out. By two or three in the morning, they were so intrigued by Jennifer's story that they agreed to go look for it that night. Stephen had work the next day, so he couldn't go, but the rest of the group went without him, and the five of them drove to the Seven Peaks Golf Course parking lot at the base of Y Mountain. It was a warm summer night out, and the group wore t-shirts and flip-flops. Jennifer told them the cave entrance wasn't far from the parking lot, so they didn't need any hiking gear. They walked up the base of the mountain for a bit, and Jennifer pointed out the gap between boulders where the entrance was. Sure enough, just like she had told them earlier in the night, a 15-foot drop stood beyond the gap in the boulders. Around 4.30 a.m., the group squeezed between the boulders and made their way into the cave. As they climbed their way down into the cave, one of the friends, 26-year-old Joseph Ferguson, got cold feet. He had a bad feeling about the cave, so he told the group he would go in, but he didn't want to swim through the cave of death. He promised to act as a lookout and make sure everyone else made it back through. The other four gave him some grief for chickening out, but in the end, they didn't really care. They clicked on their flashlights, crouched to the floor, and made their way through the four-foot-tall tunnel, and Joseph crawled back out while the group worked their way through the cave. Just beyond the entrance, he sat down on one of the boulders and listened to the group talking inside the cave as they made their way towards the dark pool of water. Their voices faded and faded until he couldn't hear them anymore. He didn't know how long they would take, so he waited patiently. But after about an hour of waiting, he figured they should have been back already. He hopped off the boulder and looked down into the cave. He didn't hear anyone or see any flashlights, so he figured they were still in the back of the cave just having fun. So he sat back down on the boulder and waited almost another hour. At that point, he knew something was terribly wrong. He looked back down into the cave, but he didn't see or hear anyone. It was pitch black and dead silent. So he figured the only thing to do was call the police, and he did at 6.25 a.m. The sun began to rise over the mountains, and every minute passed, and they didn't show up. And Joseph feared the worst. When police finally arrived, they were surprised that no one had ever reported the cave to authorities since it was so close to the golf course parking lot. After Joseph gave them a rough description of the cave layout, they realized how much of a hazard it would be. So they immediately started shucking water out of the cave with a sump pump while also pumping oxygen into the cave. After removing about six inches of water, they could crawl through the tunnel instead of holding their breath and swimming through it. They entered around 9.30 a.m., nearly five hours after the group had first entered the cave of death. As the rescue team shined their flashlights, they made their way into the cramped tunnel. And as they crawled a bit deeper into the cave, they discovered what Joseph feared the most. As they kept their flashlights pointed down the water-filled tunnel, they spotted the top of someone's head, face down in the water. It was Jennifer's dead body, gently floating on the surface. Her head pointed towards the entrance, so the rescue team figured she was on her way back through the tunnel. Rescuers decided to remove more of the water before continuing on, and after another hour passed, they removed around two feet of water, and they returned to the tunnel and shined their lights further into the cave, where they found the bodies of three other friends right behind, 
where they discovered Jennifer. Their clothes and hair were completely soaked, and their skin had begun to turn blue. Authorities figured that the group had made it all the way into the back room where six to eight people could fit, and then began making their way back towards the entrance. But along the way, Jennifer became stuck and drowned about halfway through it. One of the rescuers, Dave Bennett, said he couldn't tell how cold the water was since he was wearing a wetsuit, but he figured that hypothermia could have been a factor. After Jennifer drowned, her body blocked the passageway, and since the tunnel was too small, the next person in line probably tried to pass her, but couldn't fit. And since they couldn't communicate with each other underwater, the second person in line couldn't back out of the tunnel because two more people blocked the tunnel behind them. And the person in the back had no idea what was going on in front of them. So the swimmers were all pinned. The tunnel was pitch black, so confusion and panic quickly set in. They began thrashing and kicking, hoping the last person in line would back their way out of the tunnel. But it was too late. In their last moments, each of them inhaled several gulps of water before drowning to death in the cold, dark cave of Y Mountain. Police identified the victims as J. Blake Donner, 24 years old of Springville, Jennifer Lynn Galbraith, 21 of Pleasant Grove, Scott McDonald, 28 of Provo, and Ariel Singer, 18 years old of Orem. After authorities removed their bodies, they decided the cave was far too dangerous to leave open to the public. They sealed the entrance shut with cement so no one would ever enter the cave again. And if you remember, before setting off for this deadly spelunking expedition, they had jokingly given it the nickname, the Cave of Death. And that's exactly what it turned out to be. Following the tragedy in the cave of Y Mountain, Utah news outlets began questioning the safety of local cave systems. So Nutty Putty was closed in 2006 over safety concerns. Authorities were on high alert after the growing reports of people getting stuck or dying inside of the caves. After recent events, they began reevaluating safety precautions, and Nutty Putty Cave remained closed for nearly three years. Until May of 2009, the cave operators signed a cave management plan with Tim Panoga Scrotto. They set up an online reservation system so that only one group was allowed into the cave at any given time, and the reservation system made it so that the operators had a list of names for whoever was in the cave, and it was a good way to make sure the cave was never overcrowded. At night, they closed and locked the entrance so no one could sneak in, and they also limited access to only people who had proper gear, skill, and previous experience with cave exploring, or they would have to be accompanied by a guide. And despite all these efforts to keep the cave safe, tragedy struck once again. So this leads us to the tragic story of John Edward Jones. But before we dive into that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Thank you to those of you out there that don't skip the ads. The sponsors for the show really do help put the show on. It helps us do all the things that we get to do. It helped pay for the studio. So if you wouldn't mind checking out the sponsors, if you're at all interested in them, it does really help us out. And it, they also appreciate it, of course. But let's go ahead and get into the story of John Edward Jones. So John Edward Jones was a 26-year-old medical student at the University of Virginia. He visited Nutty Putty Cave with his 23-year-old brother, Josh, on November 24, 2009, only a few days before Thanksgiving. 
John was in the prime of his life. He was married to a woman named Emily and they had a daughter named Lizzie. Emily was pregnant with their second child who had a due date of June 2010. He was also on his way to becoming a podiatrist. John was also a devout Mormon and those who knew him said he was a good-natured man committed to family and God. And at an early age, John loved spelunking with his family. His father often took him and his brother Josh on cave expeditions through Utah, and their love for the sport had only grown since then. So before Thanksgiving in 2009, John and his brother decided to rekindle their love for spelunking at Nutty Putty Cave. But it had been years since John had been inside any cave. And now he was a six foot tall, 200 pound man, and he couldn't navigate the small nooks and crannies of the caves like he used to. He was unprepared for the many twists and turns inside, but he made it his goal to find the birth canal tunnel, despite the drawbacks. Dozens of different rooms made up the cave system, and each was connected by narrow tunnels that stretched dozens, sometimes hundreds of feet. After going over the map and planning their route, John and Josh began their descent into Nutty Putty with a few other friends. And for the first hour, everything was fine. It was just like old times, and John and his brother felt nostalgic being back in a cave, spelunking just like they used to. The group went into the largest room in the cave, known as the Big Slide. And after a while, John, Josh, and two other friends wanted to find the birth canal. As they went deeper into the cave, John kept searching for the small passage towards the end of the known cave system. The end of the system was a series of small corridors known as Vane Alley. Another area just next to the birth canal was Ed's Push. Many of these narrow tunnels led to nowhere, and a few were left unexplored. Nutty Putty was last surveyed in 2003. The unreachable areas were left out of the map, and the small tunnels at the ends of the cave were far too small for someone to fit inside. But over the years, some might have naturally opened up. The map also gave a list of things to do and what not to do while exploring the cave. Rule number four stated, do not squeeze into anything that you might not be able to squeeze out of. At around 9 p.m., John found a small hole he thought was the birth canal. He looked down into the tight tunnel and thought he could squeeze through it, thinking there were another series of tunnels on the other side, and it looked like the tunnel opened up a bit further down. But there was one major problem. John wasn't where he thought he was. Conflicting sources say that John could have been in a couple of locations inside the cave. Some sources say he was already in the birth canal, but he turned towards a small hole called the Scout Eater, which had one small hole leading to nowhere. Others say he missed the birth canal completely and crawled into a different passageway, which we mentioned called Ed's Push. It's believed that this passageway also led to nowhere, or at least nowhere a full-grown man could fit. But there were four uncharted tunnels at its end. Wherever John was in the cave, he kept pushing forward, and he was leading the group. He decided to wriggle his way into a small hole head first. It was roughly 10 by 18 inches small. Some have compared the hole to a front-loading washing machine or smaller. On top of that, the hole almost went straight down. So once he got his whole body inside the hole, it was too small for John to turn around. But this didn't stop him, and he kept on going, hoping there was an opening at the end. He worked his way through the tunnel using his hips, stomach, and fingers inch by inch, but soon the walls around him became smaller and smaller. 
The rocks pinched at his sides, and as he tried to crawl a bit further, he realized that he couldn't move forward. So he tried to push himself backward, but the walls trapped him in place. He tried to exchange all the air out of his lungs to make himself smaller, but it was no use. He tried to remain calm, but the reality of the situation slowly sunk in. He was stuck, upside down, with blood rushing to his head, 100 feet below the surface, and 400 feet away from the cave's entrance in a dark, uncharted hole. His brother Josh was close behind and he was first to find him. He tried grabbing his brother's feet and pulling him backwards, but after multiple attempts they realized it was no use. Every time Josh pulled his brother a few inches, John would slide right back down, and he had trouble pushing himself up because he had only one hand pinned underneath him and the other was behind him. His feet could still move, but since he was upside down, they couldn't help him. Quickly realizing how serious the situation was, Josh raced back towards the cave entrance while another friend stayed with John. John was left in a small hole saying prayers, asking God to save him for the sake of his wife and his kids. Once Josh got out of the tunnel, he quickly got help, and the first person to arrive to the scene was a woman named Susie Matola. She was a local rescue volunteer who dropped everything she was doing when she saw the emergency message on her rescue pager. By the time she arrived to the Nutty Putty Cave, it was near midnight, and nearly three hours had passed since John wedged himself into the hole. She put on her gear and quickly made her way down into the cave. She was a small and agile climber, so she reached him with no time to spare. Once she found him, the only thing she could see was his pair of black and blue running shoes. After they greeted each other, the first thing he politely said was that he really, really wanted to get out. Over the next few hours, dozens of more rescuers arrived at the scene, and they discussed what the best course of action would be. Some recommended lubing the cave walls so they could slip John out, but others were worried that if they lubed the walls, John could slip further into the hole. In the end, they decided to use a rescue rope that would pass through a series of climbing cams. Climbing cams are a type of protective gear that climbers use for hanging ropes. The cams are inserted through cracks in the rock walls and expand so they stay put. And the plan was to put the ropes through climbing cams and attach one end of the rope around John's feet while the rescue team pulled the other end. They also drilled bolts into the walls and attached climbing carabiners to them. They also tried drilling out the rock wall that was surrounding John but they ran into a few problems. The first was that the rock wall was extremely tough, and after an hour of drilling, they only made it through a few inches of rock. The other problem was that John and the rescuers were in awkward positions, so it was difficult to drill around him. John's position was so awkward that they couldn't even pull him out by hand. He was almost completely vertical, and all they could see were his feet. Plus, the ceiling above his feet was so low that if they pulled him straight out, his feet would stop at the ceiling. This also made them wonder how he even got into the hole in the first place, and throughout the hours of complications, John tried his best to remain calm, but as precious time passed, the blood pooled in his head and his heart had to work twice as hard. Normally, gravity helps the heart pump blood out of the brain and into the feet, but this put even more stress on his heart since he was upside down. 
After the attempt to drill the hole wider had failed, the rescue team rigged up the safety rope system of pulleys through the tunnel. It was a slow and painful process since the passageways were so small. So out of the 100 or so rescue volunteers that showed up, the team tried their best to use the smallest and most agile climbers available. After they tied the rope around John's ankles, the team pulled as hard as they possibly could. At first they had a bit of luck, and John slowly backed out of the cave an inch at a time, but the pressure of the ropes caused him pain in his legs. They decided to take a break to give John and his rescue team a quick rest, while John hanged there inverted. They lowered a two-way radio down to him so he could talk to his pregnant wife, Emily. She had been waiting for him at the entrance of the cave, and they were both agitated and feared for the worst. Their conversation had been kept private, but the rescuers reported that the husband and wife comforted each other the best they could. By this time, John had been stuck in the cave for roughly 19 hours. At any given moment, John would have an outburst of panic. And luckily, after a few deep breaths, he would calm down, especially after the rescuers began making some progress. But as every minute passed, it became harder for John to breathe. His internal organs pressed down on his lungs, and blood had pooled into his head. He risked a ruptured blood vessel, fainting, and even blindness since there was so much pressure behind his eyes. But most of all, after every hour passed, he risked losing his life. Others have died from cardiac arrest after being upside down for only 10 minutes. And at the rate things were going inside Nutty Putty Cave, John had been stuck there for nearly a full day. They continued to haul him up inch by inch until finally he was high enough to make eye contact with one of the rescuers. The safety rope system seemed to be working, and although it was a slow process, they were finally getting John up a few feet. When the rescuer asked John how he was doing, he was surprisingly relaxed. He said that he couldn't believe he was upside down and his legs were killing him, which it wasn't a surprise that his legs were killing him. There were eight men at the other end of the pulley system yanking on the rope, and every time they moved John a little bit, he would yell in agony. So after every pull, they had to take a break. But despite the agonizing process, when John made eye contact with the rescuer for the first time, he smiled. The safety crew prepared for the fourth pull on the safety rope. As they all yanked as hard as they could, something went terribly wrong. They heard something snap down towards the tunnel. The rope lost its tension, and all the rescuers who held onto it fell backwards. A hard piece of metal came flying through the tunnel and hit one of the rescuers in the face. His body fell to the ground unconscious. John had almost been at the end of his nightmare, but just before he could make it out, the rope went slack, and he plunged straight back down into the tunnel. When the rescuer regained consciousness, all he could see was a cloud of dust and darkness. It took a few minutes for the dust to settle, and when it finally did, the rescuer noticed that the stone arch near John's legs where they had tied the rope had shattered. The next closest carabiner that had been bolted into the clay wall had also broken free and hit the rescuer in the head. The cave had been so popular for its oozing clay walls, but now these walls were also the reason why their safety rope system had failed. Not only did John fall back down into the hole, but he was now deeper than he had been before. The force of his fall plunged him deeper into the tunnel. In one split second, all the work they had put into rescuing John over the past several hours had vanished. And now the situation was much worse than before. But they didn't give up. 
The rescuer who had been hit in the head switched places with his dad, who was also on the rescue team. And when the other man reached the front, he called down to John. But there was no response. His body didn't move. And all he could see were his shoes. All he could hear was John's slow, shallow breathing coming out from the small, dark tunnel. And after every minute that passed, John's breathing continued to slow down. Each inhale and exhale became smaller and smaller. The rescuers knew that if they were going to save John, they had to do it as quickly as possible. The new man in front desperately tried to lure himself into the tunnel and tie a rope around John's waist. But as he wriggled his way down into the hole, he realized he'd also got himself stuck. Luckily, he wasn't too far down, and he was able to wriggle himself free and pull himself back out of the hole. Exhausted, he left the cave, and a new rescuer replaced him. The rescuers figured their only option was to drill another hole into the cave wall for the pulley system. But as time passed, they got no response from John. His breathing became quieter and quieter, until they couldn't hear it at all. Rescuers escorted a doctor down into the caves to assess John's condition, fearing for the worst. As John had been trapped in the tunnel for 27 horrific hours. And as the doctor inspected him the best that he could, he sadly pronounced John Edward Jones dead at midnight. His cause of death was cardiac arrest from the strain placed on his body. As the news of his death traveled up to the cave entrance, his family was absolutely devastated to say the least. But despite their tragic loss, they thanked the search and rescue team for their work. One of the rescuers told news reporters that this was the most challenging rescue he had ever dealt with in his 29 years of being a search and rescue volunteer. A total of 137 rescuers had arrived at the scene and worked all day. But despite their best efforts, they couldn't save him. The next day, local authorities decided that it was too dangerous to try and get John's body out of the cave. The Utah County Sheriff's Office then had to decide what to do. They discussed closing it permanently, but some caving groups were against the decision. Even Dale Green, the man who discovered the cave in 1960, wanted to keep it open. He suggested closing off the section where John died, but leaving the rest open. He also admitted that he had gotten stuck in the same spot in the cave decades ago, but luckily he wasn't far enough down the hole, and a friend was able to help pull him out. In the end, the landowner and John's family agreed to permanently close the cave. They used explosives to collapse the ceiling above John's body, and sealed the entrance with a concrete plug. John's body is now forever sealed inside of the cave, and it now acts as his memorial. His family placed a plaque near the entrance in his memory. John's story is a warning for all cave explorers and anyone who wants to start cave spelunking. The thrill of climbing through the deepest, most uncharted areas of the earth is what draws many people to the hobby. But it's also the reason why it can be so incredibly dangerous. What an absolutely tragic story though. I can't even imagine what his wife must have felt during that day that he was trapped, but still alive inside of that cave. I mean, just the anxiety, yeah. and the, the fear, knowing that most likely he's not going to be coming back out of the cave alive. It, yeah, extremely sad. And the fact that they weren't even able to get his body out. I mean, there's just no way to get him out. He was in such a unique position in the cave, like upside down. Worst That's case what's scenario. crazy is that it's like you get down there and you don't even know which way's up. 
right because like the skies what guides us uh-huh. for what's up and what's down but when you get underground i mean you start climbing through stuff and you don't know which way's up right so he would even realized that he had gotten himself in a position where he was upside down i think ultimately that was sort of what led to his death i mean if he had been mm-hmm. stuck right side up i feel like his chances of survival would have been much higher because again he wouldn't have had blood rushing to his brain and most likely they would have figured out some way to get him unstuck because i yeah. mean you could probably be stuck in a cave you know especially with access to rescuers for days and probably be be fine i mm-hmm. would imagine i mean who knows but the fact that he was upside down and only his feet right and they were literally tying ropes to his feet and trying to drag him out i mean and he was completely immobile so he couldn't even help himself no he's just completely stuck just helpless oh man i would just be sheer panic i mean i would probably would have had a panic attack yeah. and died he had some serious willpower to live through all that yeah he really you did. know lasting what over a day or so that's it's a really long time in that position. Yeah, I mean, they said a lot of people die within ten minutes. Yeah, I mean, depending on your, you know, your condition of yeah. your body and you know what you might predisposed conditions be like, be a lot quicker mm-hmm. for most people. But for him, I mean, the fact that he was able to fight that long is truly, truly impressive. And yeah, I mean, he gave it everything he got, and man, they got they got close, and then the rope snapped. Ugh. Oh, that that must have just been such a soul crushing moment to yeah. to realize at that point, especially like hearing that and hearing the rock falling behind you, mm-hmm. realizing that this is it. I'm not coming yeah. out of this and just having to come to terms with the reality that you're, you know, this is gonna be your final resting place. Yeah. Spelunking is just like any other highly dangerous activity or sport out there i mean it's like there's risk involved every time you Mm -hmm. do it and the risk goes up when you start doing things that you know haven't been tested aren't haven't been proven to be safe especially going into areas underground that are uncharted i Mm -hmm. mean you have no idea if anybody's ever passed through that before or how you know where you end up and i get the excitement of like yeah it must be a adrenaline rush yeah yeah it's got to just be this thing of like oh what what am i going to find or what you know am i going to find this like i i get i could be wrong but i assume the big thrill for spelunkers is like finding somewhere mm-hmm. that hasn't either been seen ever by humans right that's unexplored or you like stumble upon something really cool like maybe artifacts or there's some like remnants of an ancient civilization and you're like whoa you like you find this a whole underground world and i get that that's like sort of the the reason for doing it but at Mm -hmm. the same time it's just like at what risk you know at Mm -hmm. what cost like especially when you have a family and a child on the way oh it's just so horrible yeah his poor family and and uh, it's just such a such a tragic story i mean there's so many stories out there like this one with other sports and stuff where people do this a million times and you're like you know i've 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 been in dangerous situations before i've overcome them or you know sometimes people do get that sort of invincible feeling or overconfidence where they're like i can do this you know Mm -hmm. like i'm careful i'm making sure but it all it takes is that one time where something just doesn't go right 
And then in John's case, that's what it was. He just, yeah. And he even noticed that he was a little bit too big to squeeze through that space. Like when he was younger, he was a lot smaller. So I, maybe he thought like he could still do it. But yeah, I think, I think it was just, yeah, yeah. Just kind of the overconfidence of like, I used to do this yeah. a ton before, but then like, you know, especially when you're crawling through small, small spaces, mm-hmm. like it really helps when you're smaller, you know, physically. And then as a full grown man, I mean, climbing around, I couldn't even imagine doing that now no. in any capacity. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, especially when you have to get on your stomach and you're oh, like, yeah. you're like, like crawling when you're literally getting to a point where you have to like be a worm yeah, like and shuffle. like worm right. your way through holes. I'm just like, that's, that's where I draw it. Like, that's where I <laughs> yeah, draw the line. Yeah. I mean, I draw the line where I'm completely enclosed mm-hmm. uh, around me. There's actually a phobia called clitrophobia, which is the fear of being trapped. And I'd say I definitely have that. Yeah, me too. I think a majority of people have, have this phobia of like being trapped in anything. Yeah. And then adding the fact that it's dark as yes. well, that just makes it way worse. You don't know which, which way is up. So you could end up being upside down at any point in time. That's, that's scary. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're just hundreds of feet underground. Like, yeah. When I was younger, I, I had a chance to go to Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. And the main cavern of that, there's like a big room downstairs. You actually start from the surface and it's like a hike. Oh, okay. it's like a hike and they've made it. I mean, it's like, it's pretty chill. It's just like you okay. kind of go back and forth, kind of like down into the cave. And then when you get into the bottom, it's this huge main cavern down there. Mm. It's more than 30 miles long. Holy shit. That's huge. And it is 1,027 feet below ground. Wow. 1,000 feet. Damn, that is deep. Super deep. So yeah. deep that they even have like an elevator to take it to the, oh to take God. it back to the surface. So you don't, you don't have to hike it all the way back up, but you literally descend a thousand feet underground. And when you get under there, like, I just remember having this like eerie feeling thinking like, cause they show you like a diagram and they compare like a thousand feet underground uh-huh. to what that looks like in you know buildings and what oh yeah right whatever else and you start realizing you're like oh my god i'm way down under here and it's just kind of an eerie feeling yeah and there's obviously all types of spelunking you can do gotcha um there as well but that's never you know whenever i have to get a helmet on and (laughs) start crawling through stuff and jagged edges everywhere yeah i'm so clumsy that i would probably i'd probably like kill myself (laughs) just like bashing my face on i'd like trip on something seriously i don't know how people do it honestly it's it's really impressive the people that do yeah but how was the scenery when you were there like when it's really cool i mean i bet it was probably beautiful oh it's it's then they have it lit up too so you're not in like total darkness but you can go into places where it's pitch dark you can't see your hand this close to your face i don't see how that's fun like (laughs) (laughs) can't be scared of the dark down there that's for sure but it's beautiful. I mean, you've got slag, stalactites and, and, and all of that everywhere and, nice. and just beautiful pools of water that are Ooh. like crystal clear because it's oh, just beautiful. It's there. It's def, there's definitely beauty to it. And I get yeah. why people explore it. It's like you can find serene beauty and quiet, like how quiet it is in gotcha. the cave. There's nowhere quieter. <laughs> like you can really find peace there. Wow. But, but yeah, you definitely have to be careful because things can go wrong and, you know, same with like cave diving. Like, yeah, you know, if you get stuck cave diving, you're really in a really bad position mm-hmm. too. It's very difficult to rescue somebody who is stuck cave diving because it, you put yourself at risk. And, and that's the hard part of it is like yeah. somebody else will then have to risk their life to come and save you. Right. And potentially there could be more loss of life in order to just help that one person. Mm-hmm. So 
it's it's honestly crazy and, it is and you know absolutely tragic incidents that occurred at these caves that you know you definitely don't want to go spelunking without knowing where you're going yeah that's for sure. or without a buddy i mean even john had a buddy and yeah just this the situation he was in he couldn't do much yeah and and you definitely want to have somebody knowledgeable uh-huh. in spelunking. You don't want to, this isn't for like amateurs right. or beginners. Like <laughs> right. if you're a beginner and you don't go by it, don't, don't just go, go in there and start looking around. Mm. Cause before you know it, you can get lost Yeah, and it's very hard to get out of, out of that. So, well, do you think it was the right move that they closed the cave forever? I mean, honestly, I think it was, I think out of respect for John, I yeah. think, I think it was the right move. And I, I, I mean, agree. it's clearly a very dangerous cave and it's like, it's only a matter of time before somebody else does it. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like people are always, if people are able to push the envelope and, and do something daring and dangerous, they're going to do it. And my guess is that if they didn't close the nutty putty cave, then there would be more deaths in there for yeah. sure. Right. For sure. I mean, people are, and it's, it kind of create, you know, it's sort of, gets this sort of stigma around it of like, oh, this is this dangerous place and people always want to go to dangerous places and where they're told not to go, people want to go there. Yeah. So it's like, I think it was best to just permanently seal it off and just out of respect for John Absolutely. and his family that they just make that a memorial. And yeah. I mean, there's a million other caves in Utah, so it's not like there's a, a, a lack cave of shortage, cave, right. cave ex- spots to explore. So yeah. yeah, I think it was the right move, but... I think that is where we'll wrap up today's episode of lights out. I hope you guys thought this one was interesting let us know what you think about exploring some of these other, just more, I feel, I don't know even what to call it. Just real life horror stories. I mean, it's yeah. just real life horrific stories of people, what people go through. And you know, there's usually lessons to be learned from these too. Absolutely. That's what I've realized. And I think that's important to talk about and it's important to, remember john as well as jennifer and the others that that were lost in the the cave of death as well it's just it's great awareness to keep in mind if you're one of those people want to go explore caves like you know you can you know what happens or what can happen i guess i should say so let us know in the comments what you think of uh of these two stories but that is it for us today thanks again for joining us for another episode of lights out and until next time lights out everybody (laughs) 